0: Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. In our show, we explore the impact of key political developments on the European Union and the United States. I'm your host, Soraya serhatin nelson My co-host, Rachel Tauzenfreund, is on leave. Today, we will be talking about the U.S. midterm elections. They often fail to generate much public interest in the United States and abroad. But this year, the elections that are being held on November 8th promise to be far different, as senior producer Dina El-Sayed reports. Midterm elections in the
1: United States are usually a referendum on the party in power. This time, it's the Democrats who are up for review, and the prognosis is not good. With President Biden's low ratings and the worst inflation in four decades, many American voters appear ready to make a switch. Some Republicans are already signaling a shift in key policies. For example, Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy, who will likely become the new Speaker of the House if his party wins, warned that the GOP will no longer, quote, write a blank check to Ukraine. That worries fellow Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. He recently spoke to CNN.
2: I I mean, I guarantee you, first off, you know, our evening friends on maybe a different news network are going to be talking about this constantly. Folks over at Russia are going to be talking about this constantly on RT. You're giving aid and comfort to the enemy, intentionally or unintentionally. And there are a lot of people, frankly, in the world that are worried about what a Republican majority could do, not because of the majority of Republicans. Majority of Republicans support Ukraine, but because... You know, if it's a 10 vote majority and people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has made it clear that, you know, Vladimir Putin is basically some defender of
0: Christianity, has her way, uh, it would be pretty tough to get stuff through Congress.
1: The congresswoman he mentioned and many other controversial candidates who are backed by former President Donald Trump are widely expected to win. U.S. voters are also expected to turn out in record numbers for the upcoming elections. Up for grabs are governor posts in 36 states, as well as 35 U.S. Senate seats and all 435 House seats. Some 6 million ballots have
0: already been cast. To help us make sense of the midterm elections and their repercussions, I'm joined in our Berlin studio by Suda David Wilp, GMF's senior transatlantic fellow and deputy director of the Berlin office, as well as Jeremy Shapiro, who is research director at the European Council on Foreign Relations and a former advisor to the State Department during the Obama administration. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us, Soraya.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: And joining us via Zoom is Anna Sawabrai, foreign editor for the weekly DZIIT and a contributor to the New York Times op-ed section. Welcome, Anna. Hello. Suda, let's start with you. Do you expect these midterm elections to be fair across the United States, or will they be stolen, as many Republican candidates and voters are claiming?
3: Well, personally, as an American, I believe that we have a sound electoral system. And I believe in the sanctity of our elections. And I think that we should expect a normal process on November 8th. There will be a lot of close races. Traditionally, one would expect that the House will flip to the Republicans um, since the Democrats have the White House. And we'll have to see how the Senate fares because there, again, it's very close. But the Republicans have more seats to defend in the Senate this year than Democrats.
0: But the Republicans last time, or I should say a lot of Republicans, there might have even been some Democrats who claimed this, said that the elections were stolen. And that did create quite a bit of upheaval and a delay in announcing uh, President Biden. I mean, can we expect that that's going to happen this time, and that the fur is even going to be louder?
3: I mean, certainly there will be maybe races where there has to be a recount. Um, There may be close races, congressional races, gubernatorial races. Who knows? But at the end of the day, we have dedicated poll workers. We have responsible government officials. But we do have an issue where half the nominees on the GOP side right now believe that the election was not fair in 2020. And of course, if this sentiment is going to then be in the body politic of the United States, it does present a danger for American democracy.
0: Jeremy, did you want to add something?
2: Look, uh, the American election system seems to have been invented by someone from the Byzantine Empire or something. It's completely crazy. The elections are run by the states and even by the counties and the cities. It's a patchwork of systems. There's always a lot of, at best, mistakes. Occasionally, it's a fraud. There is no systematic fraud, such as the Republicans are claiming. Proof of that, by the way, is the fact that actually they did very well in the congressional elections in 2020, even at the same moment that they lost the presidency. They've never really been able to explain how the Democrats managed to steal the presidential election but forgot to steal the other elections. So this is a crazy idea, but it's not going to matter that much in these elections. It's really uh, an idea because, of course, the Republicans will probably do pretty well and it's too diffuse an election to make a broad claim of um, systematic fraud. But I think in 2024, they are setting the ground to argue that if they lose that election that it was stolen and frankly to steal it back. And that's where this election matters because all of the governors and secretaries of state who run elections and other local officers who are being elected in this election will be the ones who determine whether the 2024 election was run fairly. And something on the order of 50 to 70 percent of the Republican candidates in those races uh, hold to the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen.
0: Jeremy, what does President Biden need from these elections, and what happens to his administration in the next two years if he doesn't get the results that he needs?
2: I think what he needs is a Democratic majority. He's very unlikely to get that in, frankly, either House, in my view, but certainly in the House of Representatives. But, you know, this is a very familiar situation to uh, presidents. Typically speaking, they lose the Congress after two years. We know that in the current partisan, polarized environment, uh, that means that his legislative agenda will be uh, dead; that he basically won't pass anything uh, for the next two years, at least. You know that will push him to actually be more active in foreign policy. That's the typical pattern, and to try to find his uh, wins, as it were, in foreign policy, and to run against a do-nothing Congress in the next presidential election. This is a very strong pattern in the last several presidential administrations.
0: But is there more danger this time? Because if these people we've talked about who embrace the big lie uh, end up in power and not just in power in a position where you see them, but also in running elections at this local and state level, I mean, does that sort of mean that elections going forward are going to well, be I very...
2: There's there's a big danger for the 2024 election. As I think I said, there isn't a much of an extra danger for governance in the next two years. This Republican Congress isn't even going to attempt to do anything. Their entire effort will be to oppose the president. They'll create all sorts of uh, investigations over nothing. They'll probably impeach him two or three times. But this will be a lot of sound and fury, signifying very little, and basically just impede the Biden administration's capacity to govern.
0: Anna, do Germans understand the gravity of these midterm elections in the US this time around? Well, I would say that
4: my newspaper and many other newspapers and television stations do their best to point out that these are very special midterm elections and that it's worthwhile paying attention and uh, having a look at the results, particularly with you view to what um, both Suda and Jeremy pointed out, um, the many election deniers on the ballot and the safety of the 2024 elections being at stake here too. I do wonder whether Germans have the capacity to really grasp it right now. It's a time where A lot is going on internationally and at home. Uh, We have the prevalent discussions here in Germany are on energy security. How are we going to get through this winter? Is the coalition in Germany going to hold? What are they fighting over currently Uh, also when it comes to energy policies? So... I think that it would deserve even more attention, both in the media and with the normal citizens here in Germany or the media consumers. And I'm afraid um, that the real size of this event is not really quite realized by many in Germany.
0: The war in Ukraine, the resulting energy crisis, as you mentioned, inflation, these are major concerns in Europe. But is this the case across the Atlantic? Asuda, what are the key issues for U.S. voters? Um, I mean, I realize you're looking at it as an American voter from this side of the pond, but what do you think is moving and shaking Americans?
3: Well, I mean, when I go home and talk to, you know, friends and relatives, I think the kitchen table issues are always important for voters in the United States. Foreign policy Except for, you know, during um, the Bush administration and the Iraq war, foreign policy doesn't necessarily play a huge role when it comes to elections. But like any election, people are worried about inflation. People are definitely worried about job security. They're worried about, you know, what America is looking like as it comes out of this pandemic. And certainly um, Americans are very supportive of Ukraine. When I go home to my parents' purpley district, I see Ukrainian flags hanging up. But I also think that Americans want to make sure that policymakers or elected officials are thinking about local issues and things that apply to America or Americans on a day to day basis. They're not necessarily thinking about the future of democracy in the United States. They want to know, will I be able to pay my grocery bill? Will my kids be able to have a living wage after they graduate from college or if they don't have a college degree? I think these are first and foremost concerns um, for Americans going to the polls this year.
0: Well, certainly abortion also was a big issue. It seemed like it was going to make a difference uh, initially. At least that was what pundits were saying. Jeremy, why has the Biden administration failed to persuade more U.S. voters that he's addressing these core issues? I mean, student loans is another one where he was moving forward on a refund and then now the courts have held it up again, the appellate court. Is there a communication gap or is it just that this is out of his control? He isn't able to move forward on his legislative agenda, even with a Democratic majority.
2: Yeah, I think you mostly answered your own question, um, but I'll, I'll agree with you. Uh, yeah, look, absolutely. I think the president has put into place a lot of legislative pieces in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act, in terms of the Infrastructure Act, in terms of a lot of things that geeks like me find quite impressive. Uh, so, you know, I would consider his first two years to be an extraordinary success, but none of that has told in the country. And it's not even supposed to, right? mean, it's supposed to eventually, but it's not supposed to by now. It takes longer than that. The president isn't a miracle worker. Right now, inflation is at 10%. Disapproval of Biden is at 52%. And you're not going to win a midterm election under those circumstances. It doesn't matter what's happening in Ukraine. It doesn't matter uh, what the state of abortion laws are. When it comes to those core issues, if the economy isn't performing well, forget it. You know, a friend of mine was complaining the other day that we talk about all of these issues, Ukraine and abortion and China, but actually the entire election just turns on the price of gasoline, which is deeply frustrating to uh, people like me. But I think there's a real truth there.
3: I mean, I totally agree with Jeremy. Actually, President Biden and his team have been super productive with, like you said, the Infrastructure Act and also the CHIPS Act, which will have tremendous repercussions for the United States moving forward. What people are worried about today and, um, you know, January 6th and what's going on in Mar-a-Lago, these things are certainly considerations. But at the end of the day, they want to know, as Jeremy said, what's the price of gasoline? How much is a gallon of milk right now? They're worried about the future for America um, in terms of future prosperity.
0: Um, We've talked about this being a referendum on President Biden. Is this midterm election going to be a referendum on Donald Trump? And how much of a role is he playing, Jeremy?
2: I don't know. I've struggled with this. He's certainly, you know, an expert at sucking up media attention. And I think he is very present uh, in the election. Let's say that it's a referendum on Biden versus Trump. There has been a trend over the last several election cycles for uh, midterm elections and congressional elections generally to nationalize, which means that the candidates themselves matter less. And what matters more, especially for the congressional elections, is that letter that you have after your name. Are you a D or are you an R? And people walk into the voting booth and vote just on that letter basically. And you know, right now we are in this election, we are sort of running a referendum on the question of whether candidate quality actually matters. The Republicans have nominated some real serious losers. I think led by Herschel Walker, who's barely even conscious and he's running for Senate in Georgia. If he wins against a very, very talented uh, incumbent senator, and he may well, the race is basically neck and neck, I think we'll know definitively that it kind of doesn't matter. They could elect a piece of banana bread if it had an R after its name.
3: I think Sudo wants to add something. Yeah, I think, you know, Trump isn't on the ballot, but he's still present um, because he's endorsed some of these candidates. But where I, you know, I am interested to see that maybe voters will split their ticket this year. Like you may have a situation in Georgia where independents will vote for Governor Kemp, but vote for Senator Warnock. Maybe even true of Ohio, for example, where they'll vote for Governor DeWine, but vote for um, Congressman Tim Ryan, who's running for Senate. So I think it's hard to measure what will happen. It's just going to be a very, very interesting set of results that we'll see after November 8th.
2: Well, it is. I mean, it's certainly hard to measure what hasn't happened yet, but um, I think we can measure what has happened. There is still some ticket splitting, but every cycle we have less and less ticket splitting. And every cycle we have more people voting strict party lines and fewer people being willing to actually be switch voters. And so I think that that trend will continue. That doesn't mean there won't be any split voters, but I think it's going to be very difficult to elect senators, particularly in states that are anti-Biden,
0: Anna, let's get your take as a German analyst. I mean, is the German public, or more importantly, perhaps Berlin—you know, the the officials in Berlin, the officials in Brussels—are they worried about Trump or these candidates who are loyal to him wielding power in the U.S. following the midterms? Um, yes,
4: I do. I, I do think um, that particularly now with the war in Ukraine, everybody in Berlin is very much aware that without America leading the coalition against Russia and alongside Ukraine, we would be in a very bad state. Of course, European states have stepped up, particularly the Nordic, the Baltic states. Um, NATO has been reinforced, um, also with uh, new members, uh, aspiring members. But after all, it's still the United States who pay the most in financial aid, uh, deliver the most weapons, and lead the coalition and lead the way. And it has just added to the worries um, that many in in Berlin have since 2016, that the uh, US democracy might falter and that the system might not be able to protect itself again. So I think these elections and of course, the next presidential elections are watched um, very closely, uh, both in political Berlin and in Germany overall.
0: There's one candidate who is often in the U.S. news these days, and that's Ron DeSantis. He's running for a reelection as Republican governor and is widely seen as a top Republican contender for the White House in 2024. Is Ron DeSantis Trump 2.0? And I throw that open to all of you.
2: Well, he's Trump 2.0 in the sense that he has adopted Trump's style uh, and his tone and his uh, his sort of way of bullying and taking leadership and demeaning everybody else. He sort of uh, understood that what the Republican electorate wants most out of Trump is that type of leadership, that type of unpolitically correct culture warrior type of leadership. What his actual views are, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, we know on cultural issues he's hit every wedge he possibly could, but on foreign policy we actually have no idea what he thinks, and he's been very careful uh, not to tell us. I think he has probably a lot of ideological differences with Donald Trump, even though he hasn't highlighted them. But what we know is that like Donald Trump, as president, he would certainly be an asshole.
0: <laughs> Don't sugarcoat it. We, we were very open to the show. Uh, is, <laughs> is there anything you want to
3: add? Well, you know, I think from what I read in the news, um, he has made, you know, being sort of the vanguard against the woke crowd, um, his forte. And you know he he definitely likes to orchestrate spectacles by sending um, migrants up to Martha's Vineyard, I believe, uh, this summer. But I do think that there is a difference between Governor DeSantis and President Trump. I would hope that he is a responsible elected official if he does win the presidency in 2024, and I I believe that our our country would survive a President DeSantis. I'm not sure if our country would survive a trump two presidency.
4: Yes, um I think what spooks me about dissenters and uh, about the situation more generally, i've I've just traveled the second half of September in the United States, mostly um, in in Trump country and uh, uh, talking to mostly to Republican um, politicians and uh, to Republicans in general is how independent the movement has become of uh, Donald Trump as a person. So I think that many of the issues that dissenters is, um, is promoting, too, that the cultural issues, the big lie, those have sort of developed uh, their own life. And it's now like um, I see it as a political market where candidates can opt to jump onto that ticket, and they now do... So also endorsing Donald Trump and hoping for his endorsement. And it certainly helps them that they sort of have the Trump stamp on their tickets and on their flyers and materials and videos and whatever they put out there. Um, but I think it would work without the person Trump, too, because it has become a, a set of beliefs that people um, promote or do not promote that they uh, claim as their political own. And that's why what what I find worrisome, that even if Trump um, is gone for good, if he doesn't run again, or uh, if he even is convicted uh, at some point, that his story will go on. And I think that is something that Germany yet needs to understand, that this is a movement independent of Trump. And maybe to the standards himself, what our correspondent has also written um, a large um Profile of him always tells me is that she's even more scared of him than Trump because he's more organized. I mean, Trump, after all, he was pretty chaotic in, in many of his policies. He wasn't able to build coalition. He wasn't able to keep a cabinet together. People kept leaving. He had to get people on board. He was disorganized in his relations and, and messages. And um, her view is that dissent is, is uh, different in that, that he's just a A much better organizer and could be more successful just because of that.
0: Do you think that a DeSantis presidency would embolden the far right in Germany and in Europe? I mean, certainly Trump has uh, in his past, you know, he's reached out to these people and you have even now Victor Orban and others going and speaking to uh, the ultra-conservatives in the U.S. I mean, there is that link. And so do you think DeSantis is going to embolden that side, uh, which, of course, is a great concern for many governments here in Europe? I'm afraid they don't need emboldenment. Um, They don't need the United
4: States or a United States uh, president or populist politician to be successful here in Europe. Orban, um, the Swedish um, far right, the French, the Italian, also the populists in UK, they have built their own coalitions. They have built their own messaging and electorate. And I don't think they need the support right now. They're strong enough as they are.
3: It's also really way too early. We don't really know who's going to actually run for the GOP. I think we're all waiting to see what President Trump, they are all waiting to see what President Trump does, but it's not just going to be Governor DeSantis, and let's see how he does in his election this November too, but there will be other contenders as well.
2: Yeah, and I certainly don't know who's going to be the next president. Uh, I would like to, um, but <laughs> I think that the point that you're raising and that Anna is getting at, which is the movement has become divorced from the individuals, I think is a really important one. And it pertains to this issue that you're bringing up now. The president of the Heritage Foundation, a very prominent uh, American conservative think tank, wrote a piece just the other day where he basically said that they're trying to form a sort of uh, illiberal international. Um, There are growing links between uh, the far right parties in Europe and the Republican Party in places like Hungary and Poland and Italy. These are not, I think Anna's 100% right, this is not necessary for these parties to be successful in their own national politics, but they can reinforce each other. Um, I think you saw during the Trump administration that the Polish-U.S. link between those parties is very helpful in reinforcing each other. I can tell you that the Polish government and the Hungarian government and maybe the new Italian government are really hoping that Trump or someone like him comes into the White House because they will find that a lot more congenial uh, and helpful in their battles, particularly battles with the EU over things like rule of law. So it is important, although I think I agree with Anna, that it's not the essential feature of their rise.
0: We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk more about the impact of the U.S. midterms on Europe, especially Ukraine. Stay tuned.
4: Democracy.
1: I'm Rachel Tausendfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at
0: gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972.
1: I'm Verena Hütte, host of The Big Ponder, the Goethe Institute's transatlantic podcast, bringing abstract concepts to life through personal radio essays. Every other week, our producers turn broad topics into captivating stories told from a U.S. and German perspective. You can find all episodes of The Big Ponder on our website goethe.de as well as on your favorite podcast apps and discover the stories behind The Big Ponder on our radio show, Sounding The Big Pond. It is broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern time on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. We do look forward to connecting with
4: you.
0: Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway and our conversation about the U.S. midterm elections. I'm Soraya Sarhadi nelson and with me here in the studio are GMF's Suda David Wilp and ECFR's Jeremy Shapiro. And we are joined via Zoom by Die Zeit's Anna Sawapai. As we heard earlier in Dina's story, the likely new speaker, if Republicans capture the House of Representatives, is already threatening to cut financial aid to Ukraine. Jeremy, do you believe financial and weapon aid to Ukraine will, in fact, be cut if the Republicans end up in charge of Congress? And um, I know Suda, I think, wanted to also add to this question. So we'll start with you and then we'll let Suda add.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, I wrote a piece on this uh, a week or two ago on the ECFR websites that um, I would refer people to. And I guess I should probably still agree with it. And it says basically that um, what the Republicans will be looking to do is to uh, beat the Biden administration over the head with everything, but particularly with Ukraine. And because they are fundamentally hawkish and Kevin McCarthy himself has sort of said that Putin is a dictator who needs to be taken care of. It won't be their effort to truly reduce support to ukraine what they'll be doing is actually blaming europe what they'll be doing is saying uh what the biden administration has failed to do is to uh, get europe to step up and pay for a war that is after all in their backyard and so they'll start to hold us funding hostage to um administration efforts to get europeans to contribute more And that may interrupt funding, that may slow down funding. I think ultimately it won't fundamentally change the U.S. position on Ukraine.
0: And Suda, you wanted to add something about the democratic effort here. Yeah, but before I do that, I think it's
3: actually really interesting, I mean, that Kevin McCarthy came out and said that, because there's a lot of bipartisan support for Ukraine, and actually the friction is more between the administration and Congress. Congress thinks the administration should actually be doing more in terms of heavy weapons and supporting Ukraine. But I think Jeremy's right. I think the pendulum will shift or the conversation will shift if the Republicans take the house. Why aren't our European allies stepping up? Why is America spending so much money without the United States? Ukraine would be at a loss and the Europeans really need to help, too. But I think. If you look at Congress, the majority of the members do want to still support Ukraine. They see this. It's more the fringes on the Republican Party. And now even more so, I don't want to say fringe, but there was a uh, letter circulated 30 uh, members of Congress from the Progressive Caucus support military reinforcement for Ukraine. But they want to see that coupled with diplomatic initiative. And I think to me, that sounds like they're starting to waver. On Ukraine, and that will certainly be adapted by Russians for their own use in terms of creating a narrative that US support is shaky. And that will, of course, um, have an effect here in Europe as well.
2: I mean, I want to object a little bit. I think uh, defend the Progressive Caucus. A willingness to negotiate an end to a war, which after all threatens nuclear escalation and the deaths of pretty much everybody on the planet, is not really being shaky about the moral principles that are at stake in this war. I think that these progressive members of Congress understand what is at stake, but they also understand that this is a nuclear armed power and that we have to reach some sort of compromise eventually with them. That is not a crazy idea. That is not a weak idea. Um, And I think, frankly, the idea that the Biden administration, the reason that the Biden administration isn't negotiating is because it is so afraid of the hawks in both the Democratic and the Republican parties, but that the Biden administration itself believes that some sort of negotiation Yes, adhering to the idea that uh, all the principles that they've articulated about Ukraine having, uh, being able to determine what this peace is, is important. But I I think negotiation is also important.
3: I find the timing and the form not ideal. I mean, to have an open letter, like why not just speak to the president in a meeting rather than to sign an open letter. Before, because you know, the two president- weeks before the midterm election, I think it shows that they're not 100 percent behind the administration, what, it, what they're doing. Of course, the Biden administration is going to have back channels. I mean, Secretary Austin's already been speaking to the Russian defense minister. But I do think that the timing is just not ideal right now.
2: Uh, uh, timing might not be ideal. I'm not sure that the timing is ever ideal to disagree with the president of your own party. But um, I think that the problem that the progressives have on this issue is that uh, there are so many hawkish voices which are so penalizing uh, the Biden administration for even contemplating the idea of negotiations. There's a great article in Politico about all of the steps they're taking to make sure that Biden doesn't even run into Putin at the G20. In fact, negotiations have become very hard, and what they're looking to do, hopefully, in this letter, and actually I know that they are, is trying to give the president some cover and his administration some cover for actually talking to the Russians about the very serious issues involved. The
3: problem is the uh, the Republicans will totally also take that as uh a... you Republicans know, Neville will do. What Republicans will then
0: do then so, so yeah. Anna, we have a, a little example here of, <laughs> of what, what <laughs> the debate is going, or what the debate is sounding like in the U.S. And I'm wondering what this shift in U.S. or potential shift in U.S. foreign policy toward Ukraine will have on Germany and the rest of the EU. Are they going to soften their stance? Are they going to step up? I don't see
4: an immediate shift, but of course, this is a very long game. And um, Berlin, as we record this podcast, is just holding a reconstruction conference, um, which points to uh, the fact that Ukraine will need a lot of support, financial aid from abroad, even if this war comes to an end. So I think Europe and Germany in particular are very much uh, dependent on the US support and if the US do not support Ukraine as they do today, It has the potential to widen the rifts we already see within the European Union, because I don't think that the Baltic states, the northern and um, the Eastern European states such as Poland, um, Sweden, Finland will soften in their support of Ukraine. But when you look at how Chancellor Olaf Scholz of Germany is framing the question, usually he always says that Germany is doing what um, Germany allies are doing. So it's sort of the leading from behind idea, if you will. Um, We are looking at the support others are giving, and then we'll be doing the same. And um, he has particularly said that with regard to weapons deliveries. But of course, it could be extended to financial support too. Germany has always been one of the biggest financial supporters of Ukraine even before this phase of the war started, but also since 2014, uh, since Germany took some form of responsibility um, in, in the Minsk talks. Uh, and I think it will continue to do that. Um, but I'm not sure about um, actual weapons deliveries if the U.S. were to step down. And then we would have uh, more of the difficulties between the Eastern and the more reluctant German members of the European Union when it comes to supporting Ukraine. So it from the German perspective, the U.S. is the leader. Um, it's the measure for uh, German policymakers. And I think it would be hard to find a new line, a new line in policy uh, if the U.S. were to change their view and their attitude towards um, aiding Ukraine.
0: What about Russia, though? I mean, if we change, we in America, in other words, change our approach to Ukraine whether it's soften, harden, give more aid, give less aid. What happens with Russia? Because certainly there was some admiration expressed during the Trump administration for Putin, for Vladimir Putin. I'm just wondering, do we go back to that? And what impact does that have on Europe? And I don't know who wants to start.
2: Uh, Okay, I'll start. Uh, Neither of us wanted to, but I'm going to give it a (laughs) shot. Um, And then uh, you you can tell me why I'm wrong. I'll probably even believe you at that point. Um, Look, I mean... Donald Trump is still occasionally has a nice word to say about Russia. His sort of continued belief in the virtues of Vladimir Putin is quite extraordinary, and I'm not really sure where it comes from. But in this particular thing, he doesn't really represent much, even within the Republican Party, even interestingly within his own movement. Um, I think you hear on Fox News, particularly from Tucker Carlson and like presenters that we need to have a greater willingness to negotiate with russia and but most of this argument is about how horrible ukraine is not about how good uh russia is there's very little sympathy for vladimir putin and for russia within the congress and that's even doubly true within the biden administration i think even if they were negotiating with the russians which i believe they should be doing they wouldn't be doing that on the basis of uh, friendship they'd be doing that on the basis of mutual coexistence and you know not devolving into a direct conflict and nuclear war, which is, I think, something that both sides would probably favor.
3: I mean, I think if Germany has come to the realization that relations with Russia can't be like they were before with Putin in charge, I think the United States certainly is not going to take a benign approach to President Putin and just forget everything that happened in the last couple of years. And I agree with uh, Jeremy here, actually. I think that (laughs) Um, I think that I I don't think that most Americans see Putin, you know, as a a leader for good. And certainly in Congress, most Republicans also support NATO and they see that President Putin is trying to destroy NATO and destroy Euro Atlantic security. So I think for them, um, you know, there's no going back to any time where Putin could be seen as a partner. I think Eventually, the United States, together with Europe, will have to think about Russia after Putin. But first, I also don't think, and President Biden has said this clearly, that they don't want to necessarily negotiate with Russia without Ukrainians at the table. And from my understanding, the Ukrainians want everything back. They're not ready to negotiate. They see Russian aggression, um, and if there's a settlement of some sort, as just giving Putin a pass— to mobilize again and attack, even with more force, down the
0: road. Uh, yeah, Jeremy just well. sort of gave this glance to <laughs> to Suda, so I'm going to get let him have one last word before I pull Anna back into the conversation here. So. Uh.
2: No, I don't think I'll do that. But I I would say just to sort of uh, uh, highlight what she was talking about, the one possible exception to this is President Trump himself, not his movement, not Ron DeSantis, not anybody else you can think of. There is something very strange uh, in President Trump's, former President Trump's attitude toward Russia and toward Vladimir Putin specifically. He has never wavered in his support admiration and uh, and
3: fascination and
2: fascination absolutely with Vladimir Putin and there's no reason to suspect that if he became president in 2024 that that wouldn't reemerge and the president of the United States is an incredibly powerful actor in foreign policy so it would make a policy difference since that's a real wild card but i think that that's a wild card that's beyond democrat and republican
0: Anna, uh, anything you want to add about how German uh, foreign policy toward Russia or the position towards Russia might shift depending on what the U.S. does following the midterms?
4: I think it's not so much dependent on um, the U.S., but on the debate within Germany. Um, And I think that at the point we're at now, I don't see it shifting massively, um, those voices who say we need to bring the war to an end. We need to reduce support. We need to drop sanctions. Uh, We want negotiations. Even if we have to push the Ukrainians harder, those voices do exist. But um, as far as I can tell right now, they are fringe voices. And even within the Social Democratic Party, um, there are still some debates on Germany's relations with Russia, but I think they are pretty steadfast, at least foremost, in their leadership with the party leader, Lars Klimba, with Olaf Scholz, that there is no going back to German-Russian relations as they were before this war. Um, And that's agreed on within the Christian Democratic Party. The the liberals and the Greens, in any case, that was always their opinion, even before the war started. Um, So I don't see Germany flipping on that. What I think is still lacking is a good idea of how to deal with uh, Russia after the war, be it under Putin, be it under some other, maybe even more radical authoritarian forces, Uh, Scholz's main foreign advisor, Jens Putner, has once brought up the term constrainment, Um, but do we really know what it means? I think Germany is still uh, trying to figure that out.
0: Well, to get back on the topic of midterm elections, I have one final question that I'll pose to all of you. Could these midterm elections lead to the end of American democracy? And I don't say this lightly. A lot of writers have been referring to that. And in fact, a recent New York Times-Siena College poll found that 71 percent of all American voters believe democracy is at risk. Plus, more than a quarter of those voters, including 41 percent of Republicans, say they have little or no faith in this year's midterm elections. And Jeremy, we'll start with you.
2: If you uh, drill down on that 71%, what you would find is that um, it's about equal Republicans, Democrats, actually Republicans slightly more, but they each believe that the other party is a threat to democracy for very different reasons. I'm a Democrat, so I believe that the Republicans are a threat to democracy, um, and they are a threat to democracy in the following way, which won't manifest itself in this election, but could manifest itself in the next one and have results that come from this election And that is less about this voter suppression and gerrymandering stuff, which is, in the first instance, never proven that effective. Republicans have not been good at voter suppression. They have given it their best shot, but they haven't really managed it very well. And gerrymandering has been with us since you know Eldridge Jerry, who was a signer of the U.S. Constitution. But I think it will be effective possibly in the types of scenarios we saw after 2020 where um, a state uh, that matters for the election is very, very close – And the state elected officials, who in 2024 will have been elected on the big lie that the 2020 election is stolen, will essentially steal it back and will submit a different slate of electors, send those to Washington, and have Washington sort it out. And I think that that contains a lot of potential for institutional breakdown, for uh, violence in the streets, uh, and for uh, the erosion of American democracy. Of course, even then, no one will sort of get up and pronounce democracy dead. We've been building democracy in the U.S. for about 250 years. We haven't managed it fully, uh, but we've made a lot of progress. It will take us a long time to dismantle it um, as well, but that would be a significant step in that direction.
3: Suda? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly at a very dangerous inflection point because if we do have corrupt election officials in office in 2024, that could determine the presidential race in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, or Pennsylvania. But... um, As Jeremy mentioned, I mean, we do still have guardrails of democracy. We have a lively press. Um, We also have responsible elected officials. Look what happened in Georgia in 2020. I mean, the Secretary of State there, a Republican, and Governor Kemp did not find President Trump the votes that he wanted. So hopefully there will be um, responsible officials who do their job um, in 2024 if a majority of these candidates do get elected um, in states across the United States.
4: Anna, anything you want to add? No, not really. I mean, I absolutely agree with uh, both Suda and Jeremy. I don't think it's it will be the end to American democracy. This will be a very long process if it really takes place. But I do think that the peaceful transfer of power that was already very much disturbed in 2020 will stay rocky and will become very likely very much rockier. Um, with these midterm elections and with election deniers entering such important offices such as secretaries of state or governor. So my scenario would be Jeremy's scenario that we will have many people in 2024 saying that um, the election was stolen, that there was fraud, and uh, that the transfer of power from one president to the next will just take very much longer, and open it up to all kinds of other events, including violence.
0: We'll have to leave it there. Our guests are Suda David Wilp, GMF's Senior Transatlantic Fellow and Deputy Director of the Berlin Office, Jeremy Shapiro, who is Research Director at the European Council on Foreign Relations and a former advisor to the State Department during the Obama Administration, and Anna Sauabrai, Foreign Editor for the Weekly Dietz site and a contributor to the New York Times op-ed section. Thanks to all 3 of you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks Raya. Thank you. To our listeners who are U.S. citizens, be they at home or abroad, don't forget to vote on November 8th. And thanks to all of you for listening to Transatlantic Takeaway, a joint production by the German Marshall Fund in Common Ground Berlin. I'm your host, Soraya Serhati-Nelson. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are Goethe Institute and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. All Common Ground and GMF's out-of-order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure also to check out our respective podcast's websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org.